0: All week, I was petitioning Joel to let me sing a duet as part of that. Just kept saying, Stay away from the microphone. You do your own thing. So, but, you know, I didn't say this in first service, but it was something that uh, was definitely in my mind and in my heart as we were in worship, and then even through the announcements and the Seder meal, which I love Seder meals. I had never had uh, experienced those things growing up. And over the last five years or so, my wife and I have partnered together with another family that has five children and we have a Seder meal every year, uh, four adults, 10 children. And it really has led me into some depth in terms of understanding uh, even where our communion celebration comes from. So uh, if you do have time to show up at the Seder meal, I think it's really uh, a powerful time. And just even in all of that, uh, thinking back in the last couple of years of just being part of what's happening here and Kevin allowing me to speak and, and asking me to do so, it's really been a delight. And I was just really mindful of that in worship just now. But just the, the conversations, Joel and I will sometimes go out late at night and uh, and just talk about life and faith and ministry, and it's just been a real meaningful time for me. Obviously, you know, the breakfast with Kevin. Uh, we try to get the elder uh, statesman out with us at night sometimes when he doesn't. I think he falls asleep at 7. But we get up for breakfast in those conversations, and then truly just the time in between services, and after service in the hallways with all of you and just talking about life and faith, it really has been a delight for me, and I really appreciate that time. And, and for better or for worse, I, I sense God just doing stuff here. What those things are, it's always you know hard to tell, but you can sense that God is at work, and I'm just grateful to be a part of that. So in light of that, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know, as Joel referenced, we've been in a series of sermons titled Journey Towards God. And last week, when Kevin was doing the message, he was talking about this idea of journeying towards an unknown God. And as we do so, making that unknown God ever more known in our hearts, in our minds, but in our hearts in particular. Where the, uh, the, the God that we serve dwells in our hearts and, and we get to know him and manifest him then in the ways uh, that he is to the world around us. And at the end of the sermon last week, maybe this caught your attention. It caught mine as I sat up in the balcony. He read a statement about something that had been birthed in his own heart, in his own mind, as he was prepping for the sermon about this journey towards God. And I asked him to send it to me, and he did, and and I wanted to just read it as a way of getting into where we're headed this morning. Kevin said this, "...we who have experienced the taste of God's Spirit through this gift of unity." and through the gift of joy, to now seek after and receive His Spirit in fullness. No ifs, ands, or buts, no provisions, no stipulations, no parenthetical clauses, no fear, no hesitation, no holding back anything, but with an all-in surrender. That caught my heart last week, and I recognized that I responded to that favorably, positively, wanting to say yes to that, and maybe some of you did, maybe many of you did as well. But as I was reflecting upon that, and Kevin and I have had lots of conversations, even in the last couple months, about this very subject, what was part of our conversations and what I've come to realize is that even if I want to give an all-in yes in that way, to surrender fully of who I am, and to journey towards God with whatever He has for me, there's the potential of an obstacle in the way. And that obstacle is sin. Specifically, though, not just sin in general, specifically the shame and the fear I experience because I still carry sin with me on this journey of life. So, If I'm honest with myself, perhaps if you're honest with yourself, you know that beneath the Christian social constructions we put on, as easily as we put on our clothes in the morning, where we can go and say, God is good and isn't it great and all things, we know that as we walk up this journey of life, and sometimes it's even confusing, why would I still be struggling in these ways? in the frailty of my heart, in the sin that so easily ensnares, why is that still there? I'm certainly not going to show that out here. We'll explain more about that in a minute. But I know that I carry it with me. I know that I'm not the husband that I want to be. I know that I'm not the father that I want to be. I know that when it comes to walking out this journey of life, there's a ton of fear that I might be provided for. I don't even know what it means all the time to just say, give us this day our daily bread, to really live in that. I'm pretty sure I couldn't journey well with the Israelites in the wilderness where God provided that manna day in and day out just to teach them something. But I don't trust in that way terribly well. As I walk towards God, I have this shame and this fear that that comes from my sin. And And that shame and that fear really gets exacerbated now because of some of the pictures I've carried about who God is through the course of my journey in life. And so that shame in this fear rises up, especially when I have this picture of God that he is perpetually offended and pervasively angry about my sin. Knowing that I carry sin, and this picture that I have in my mind of God who is perpetually offended and pervasively angry about my sin. Andrea sent me this slide this last week. It cracked me up. I mean, it's a little extreme, right? But but it got the point across. So Kevin's calling us as a, as a body to journey towards God, to be fully surrendered, wide open, letting the fullness of who we are be made known as we walk towards God. I don't know that I want to do that if I'm walking towards a God who, when he sees me, is perpetually offended and pervasively angry about my sin. So, reflecting on this, and a story came to my mind from 30 years ago when I was in the sixth grade, 12 years old, and spring break was upon us as these young children, and the bell rang at the end of the school day, and my buddy and I, his name was Ricky Schomer. Uh, Ricky and I left the classroom with our book bags in toast, celebrating that spring break was upon us. And looking back, I should have known better, because with a name like Ricky, I was probably bound for some trouble. I mean, you know, Ricky is just by its definition kind of this mischievous name, right? If he was a serious lad, it would have been Rick or Richard or Dick or something, but Ricky knew was in for some trouble. So Ricky and I took our book bags, and to celebrate the beginning of spring break, we were walking on the second floor of our school building, and we were heading down the stairs now, and the stairs went down and then a platform and then down again to the first level. And we thought it would be a great idea to just take our book bags and throw them over the top and let them land on the first level. Why sixth grade boys think that's a great thing to do, I don't know, but it seemed very kingdom to me. So we did, we chucked him over the top and we celebrated the glory of our great move there and we walked down the stairs to the platform down the next flight of stairs and about an inch away from where our bags had landed causing us to screech to a halt in our tracks there stood the principal. (laughs) She didn't say much. Something along the lines of well that will be detention for the two of you. Welcome to spring break. And I remember thinking as I got on the bus that afternoon, I thought, well, the one good thing about this is it's spring break. They'll never remember, right? They'll never remember. I'm not going to tell anybody about this. I'm not going to tell my parents when I get home, nothing and stuff. It'll all be forgotten. And, you know, even looking back, I think, gosh, it's crazy how even keeping all of that hidden really wrecked my spring break. It's really interesting, isn't it, how when we're caught in something like that and we're not going to bring it out to the light so that it can be dealt with, it makes a misery of who we are. It made a misery of my spring break. But I didn't want to be honest about that. I didn't want to bring it into the light. And the reason is, is I was terrified. Got back to school the following week from Monday, and I played out the school day, and when the time came that I should have walked to the administrative offices, to serve my detention, I decided instead to get on the school bus. They for sure would forget. And I got home, and I still remember vividly, you know, you have some of those childhood memories, right, that still come back as if they just happened yesterday. This one is like that for me. I was down in the basement of our home, putting together some Legos, you know, just thinking maybe I got away with it. And suddenly my mother's voice calls down the stairs, Peter, <laughs> now I knew exactly, and my mother was gracious, but I knew exactly what it was that I was getting into and explained what had happened, and now I had to go back to the next day at school. And I played out that whole day in school, and the bell rang, and now it was time to walk down that long hallway to the administrative offices. And I remember the feeling of utter terror that I felt as a sixth-grade boy walking towards the worst place you can possibly walk in any school, right? Towards the principal's office. I was a sinner caught in the hands of an angry school staff, and nobody wants that. And looking back, even the reason for my terror is because, and we're going to get into this this morning, the reason for my terror was because I had this picture of God that when it comes to sin, He is perpetually offended by it, and he is pervasively angry about it. And if that's true, and I'm going to walk towards God, and we're going to walk towards God, journey towards him, as Kevin has suggested, I'm not sure that I want that. If at the end of the road is this massive fist coming down on the earth. Well, I'll tell you the end of the story as I walked in, because what happened utterly changed the picture of so much for my life. I won't tell that yet. I'll tell that Later, But what's happened since those moments as a 12-year-old boy in the hallways of school is that as I've journeyed out life in the kingdom, I'm not entirely sure anymore that God's response to sin is that he is perpetually offended by it and that he's pervasively angry about it. I'm not so sure that that is his first or even primary response to sin. Let me stop here. If you're concerned, even at this moment, I promise you'll get more concerned in a bit. But if you're concerned now, let me stop in a moment and just say that, yes, I absolutely believe God's anger is real. It's very biblical. But the question that I have is in the realness of God's anger, is God perpetually offended And is that anger pervasive, as if this is the only response that he has to sin? That's the question. In the realness of God's anger, is that the only response he has towards our sin? I think we need to think about that this morning. I think the answer to that question is that his only response to sin is going to matter about whether or not we can journey towards him in the way that Kevin has called us to. So that's where we're headed this morning. And to just give you two warnings about the sermon, about where we're going to head, and I'll pray in just a moment as we get started. Uh, The two warnings that I have is that to reflect upon what we think about God and where we get some of these images of God is going to require some historical theological reflection. About 1,700 years of it exact that I will try to accomplish in about 15 minutes. And it might seem really boring to you. It probably will be. I'll try to make it as interesting as I can because when we understand where we got some of these pictures, it helps us understand as we hold them up to the light of Scripture where they all fit. The second thing that I'll bring up is I'm painfully aware that as I bring up some of the history, there will be some names with which you are most likely familiar. And these names have had the capacity to cause great deals of tension and division in the church over the years. In fact, people have been killed for even breathing these names or maybe even having a question about these names. And so just so you know, if you feel that way about me as I bring them up, at Northwestern College on Tuesday, they're holding a public stoning of me. So just hold your tongue. Uh, You can come (laughs) on Tuesday. (laughs) But kidding aside, I do want you to hear, and please hear this, I'm just sort of a theological nerd. I love reading past theology and figures and the effects they've had on our journey, I love it. And I have a great respect for all of them. I really do. I think the arguments that have so divided have caused great damage to the kingdom. And I love reading the different theologians that are there. And I've learned a lot from all of them in pictures of God, but know this. I don't think we're called to serve a theological figure. I don't think we're called to serve a theological construction of who God is. My understanding is, is that we're called to serve God. We're called to serve who He is. And constructions of us handed down from traditions are helpful. They really are. I almost wore a tie this morning for Pete's sake, just to reflect that. I never wear a tie. When I preach. Halleo this morning, I was like, I don't. Should I wear a tie should I not? Should I? And I was struggling even this morning just because I wanted to demonstrate in some some physical way that I think we do a great disservice when we just chuck out the traditions of our past. But to recognize that God has moved in those ways, but to recognize that God is not contained by those ways. And so it's fair to just wonder and think and question, because the goal of this is that we journey towards the face of God. Let his name be hallowed in his name alone. And with that, I'd like to pray as we begin. God, I I do ask in ways that uh, exceed the power of words that your Spirit would anoint us all that we can interact with who you really are this morning. For those that have been sitting in their sin for far too long, set them free. And allow us to be the kind of people who do not revel in our sin, are not permitted to live in our sin. But are not afraid either to come to you with it. I ask these things by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, so some 1700 years ago. In the 400s, this theological figure named St. Augustine, have you heard of him before, St. Augustine? Okay, at least I got a couple nods of head. Major theological figure in the early church. He stood in front of Pope Innocent III with this massively important theological argument. In the argument that Augustine was bringing to the table related to sin... And it related uh, specifically to how sin affects our inner character, our inner core, how how we interact with it. And he had this argument that he wanted to bring, and his argument pitted him against another theologian of that day by the name of Pelagius, who had a very different view of sin in the soul. So picture in your mind's eye, I guess I was thinking about just a silly picture this last week, but picture in your mind's eye, fast forward to today's day, and, and Joel is standing, on this side of the stage, and, and I'm standing over here on this side of the stage, and, and Pope Kevin the first is sitting in the middle. Of the, and I think it's the first. I don't think there's been a Pope Kevin, so he'll be the first. Um, Pope Kevin the first is sitting in the middle, and Joel and I are arguing a really important argument about whether or not having red hair or no hair makes you holier. <laughs> I mean, clearly we know, right? I mean, clearly. <laughs> We know. And someday, you know, Joel will recognize that fact too. And I certainly hope I'm there when it happens. (laughs) So anyway, Augustine and Pelagius were standing there arguing. And Pelagius would argue that, and consistent with early Christian theologians and Jewish theologians of the Old Testament, Pelagius argued that sin was real, but that the deepest part of who we are is good, simply because it comes from the hand of God. And what God creates is good. So when you see a newborn baby, sin is certainly there and present in some ways that we sometimes understand, sometimes don't. But, there's a, but alongside of that, the reflection of the goodness and the wonder of God is there in the baby's face. And I don't know that I'm a sentimental sap as a parent. I mean, I know that I am and we have five children. But when I see those children, I'm not sitting there thinking, "Whoa, what a massive creature of sin. You know, you, the, the wonder is there. But Augustine had a very different view from his theological reflections. And he came to argue in front of the Pope that actually sin did so infuse our inner nature that the good is no longer recognizable, if present at all. And furthermore, because that is true, Augustine argued, that sin was so deeply inside of us, and because God, who is perpetually offended by that sin, uh, Unless something is done to get rid of that, 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 that stain that's there, you're headed towards hell. So they argue back and forth, and ultimately, uh, and I can't get into all of it here, but for some political reasons, the Pope sided with Augustine on his argument, branded Pelagius a heretic, and kicked him out of the church. Interestingly enough, Pelagius went to the city of Alexandria. There was a bishop there named St. Cyril, who was one of the early important church fathers, took Pelagius in, let him continue his ministry. And to this day, there are streams of Christianity that would hold to views that were similar to that. But the stream in which most of us have been raised now came through the Roman church that had won the argument where where Augustine had won the argument, and thus the doctrine of original sin was birthed. It wasn't present there for hundreds of years, but now the doctrine of original sin was birthed, and the way the church decided to deal with that was to create this ritual of infant baptism. Anybody familiar with infant baptism here? Okay. And the reason for infant baptism was to wash away that stain to make sure that the child would not go to hell. My own grandmother, 1,700 years after this had all been enacted by the church, had 12 children growing up in this tradition. Three of those children died very early, whether in they were stillborn or they died very early on the way home from the hospital. They died before they were baptized. And when it came to the funeral and the burial, she was forced to bury them outside of the cemetery of the church. This stuff affects us. The stuff from the the past affects our lenses and our views of God. Interestingly enough, on that, about 50 years ago, the Roman church officially changed their Augustinian position. And they said, instead of of infants being condemned to hell, infants are left into the hands of God. And masses of people went to the cemeteries and dug up their loved ones and reburied them in the cemetery of the church. The point of this is that this thinking has penetrated into the lens of how I see God. That when it comes to my sin that I know is real inside of me, just like Paul in Romans, right? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body? Uh, It's there. But if God is perpetually offended and pervasively angry, that's going to be a pretty big obstacle in my way of coming to him with this. I'd rather sow my fig leaves much rather so, my fig leaves. Well, fast forward about 1,100 years, and we arrive at another massively influential figure by the name of John Calvin. Just Even bringing up the name, I kind of, oh, I'm, is he really going to say that? And I just want you to know I didn't have any choice to say it. I was predestined to talk about this. <laughs> okay, that's terrible. That's the kind of joke that Hallie would just be like, you should not say that. <laughs> <laughs> I even had a student say uh, this last couple of weeks as we were talking about it in class, and she said, you must be Armenian. You know, it was like this curse. And, and I was like, well, no, don't, don't, don't you remember we talk in class all the time that I, we don't, we're not disciples of theologians? Don't you remember that I'm not Armenian or Calvinist? That, that intuitions are both, they're somewhat helpful, but aren't we supposed to serve God? And, and then questioning some of that, and I said, well, you know, Calvin and Armenian... were were both asking cause and effect questions of a timeless God. So even their questions were problematic. So I said that, and then we all sort of sat there in silence because nobody, myself included, even knew what I had said. (laughs) So, but the point of this is that Calvin loved St. Augustine. And he took his doctrine of original sin and he formed a really cool acronym around it. You might be familiar with the acronym. It's TULIP, right? T-U-L-I-P. TULIP formed the systematic thought of Calvin. And again, can't get into all of it, but the important part for this morning is that the T of TULIP was, uh, it stood for total depravity, right? Total depravity. That's the starting point for us understanding who we are as people. There's nothing good in us. So God chooses some because we can't even recognize good if it came up and bit us. And so God chooses some, sets them over here, chooses others, set them over there. And those others that still have sin, he throws into hell because God can't be bothered with sin. At best, he tolerates it for a little bit, but he's perpetually offended and pervasively angry about it. Just a few weekends ago, if you think this stuff doesn't matter, there was actually a TULIP conference held in Minneapolis among a number of pastors. Now, (laughs) I wasn't invited. I can't imagine why. But, and again, please hear me. I actually really enjoy reading John Calvin. Weirdly enough, I actually enjoy reading Joseph Arminius, too. In neither one of them, because no theological construction of God as finite beings, asking questions of the infinite God is going to be perfect. So I will not serve a theological construction. I will be neither Calvinist or Armenian. But I'd like to be as a Christian. Well, fast forward another couple of hundred years from there, and we come on perhaps one of the most famous sermons ever given. 1703. An American theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards gave a sermon that was titled, and you probably know it, Sinners in the Hands of What Kind of God? An Angry God. Well, thankfully, Andrea and I were able to cook up a little YouTube video that'll give you a bit of flavor of Edwards' sermons this morning. So uh, so picture yourself in colonial America, 1703, and here is the message. You get two minutes and 41 seconds of this this morning, okay?
1: unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight and these places are not seen the arrows of death fly unseen at noonday the sharpest sight cannot discern them God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to make it appear that God had need to be at the expense of a miracle or go out of the ordinary course of its providence to destroy any wicked man at any moment. All the means that there are of sinners going out of the world are so in God's hands and so universally and absolutely subject to his power and determination that it does not depend at all the less on the mere will of God whether sinners shall at any moment go to hell than it means we're never made use of or at all concerned in the case. Eight. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more, and they rise higher and higher till an outlet is given, and the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose." It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God... Should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were ten thousand times greater than it is, yea, ten thousand times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure. It. <laughs> So
0: let's journey towards God together. Well, finally, fast forward into the 20th century into one final figure. And this one's actually the hardest one for me because I have such profound respect and absolutely adore the man Billy Graham. Powerful effect in our world. Many, many people have come into the kingdom of God and are walking in it because of his ministry But I think it's helpful to at least note that, as part of our tradition, one evening in his budding crusade movement, Billy Graham had run out of sermons to give. So he sat there in the tent of the meetings, and after explaining the historical and theological importance of Jonathan Edwards in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he proceeded to give that message. And those crusades then birthed tons of similar evangelistic movements that then I grew up in. And maybe some of you did as well. And in these movements, typically what happened is that we would come on a Sunday morning or we would go on a Wednesday evening and we were invited to listen to the gospel message. And I remember as a youth, as part of youth group, we, in, in, in preparation for Gospel Week, we were invited to try to identify some of our non-believing friends, right? And then ask God to lay on our heart somebody who we should invite to come that week. And then I was like, oh, please, God, don't Okay, Sam, ah! So now I've got to go invite Sam to come. But thankfully, we were prepared with sort of this bait-and-switch kind of technique where we could invite Sam to the worship service uh, or to the, to the Gospel message but not tell Sam much about the gospel part of it, right? We would say, there's a great band, there's lots of games to be played, and the girls are really cute, right? You know, And I met my wife in youth group, so clearly that was true. And uh, and so we would invite Sam, and it was this bait and switch, because what we really wanted was for Sam the unconverted to hear the gospel. And we even got points if we could bring a bunch of non so then the time would come after the band had played and the games had also been played and, and people had been met, that then the youth minister or whatever would stand up and begin the gospel message with a question that went something like this. So if you die tonight, do you know where you would go? And we're all like, oh, yeah. And I had heard it many times, and that message freaked me out every time. And as we walked through that, and the God who's angry about our sin and is sending us to hell, and we better do something about that, at the end of it all, there would always be this invitation to pray a prayer, right? And then we could be guaranteed to get into heaven. It was our Protestant version of infant baptism. Just our ritual for somehow dealing with that. So freaked out was I every time that I heard that message. I think I prayed that prayer 13 times, right? I'm think i I'm guessing when I get to the other side, my, my name will be, uh, have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life at least those 13 times I can help Peter go find it. with some of the pictures that come through that, and as grateful as I am, and hear me please, I am grateful for the traditions of our past. Part of that tradition of our past is that I was left with a God who is perpetually offended and pervasively angry about our sin, as if that's the only way God deals with it. So let me ask you this. In our remaining time, do you think that's true? Is God perpetually offended and pervasively angry about our sin as if that's the only way he deals with it? Is that what we should teach our children? Is that the face of God that we should present to one another? Is that what we should turn towards the world with? When well, answering that question, let me try to ask you another question that I think will help answer it. In setting up the question, I think we have to agree on a couple of things, theologically, and if we do, then I think it'll flow from there. But would we agree that Jesus, when he walked on this earth, was God? Okay. We'll have some creedal problems if we don't agree with that. Would we also then agree from there that Jesus being God was a perfect reflection of God when he walked this earth? If that's true, then the big money question of the morning is simply this. Who did Jesus get angry at when he walked in this earth? To whom was his anger directed. If we read the scriptural text, the only time Jesus got angry was at those people who were actually preventing the people who desperately needed the kingdom of God from coming in. The only time Jesus got angry was preventing those people who in their sin desperately needed the kingdom of God and to walk in it. You have to think about the money changers in the temple, extorting people who are simply coming to try to just make their sacrifices for sin. Jesus tipped over their tables. He says this to some of the teachers, Woe to you in Matthew 23, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people and you do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are coming to even find their way in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you travel around on sea and land to make one convert to your cause. And when he becomes one convert to your theological cause, you actually make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's some hard language. But Jesus' anger was always reserved for those people who were shutting out the kingdom from those who desperately needed it. And by contrast... (laughs) Who did Jesus eat with? With whom did he spend his time? And eating was the most intimate form of fellowship in that culture in that time. You know the answer to the question. He ate with sinners. God on earth. God on earth, in his response to the sin that he saw around him, came to the table and ate with those people. So much so that the people around him accused him of associating with them and that he was just somehow one of them. Again, hear me. God's anger about sin is real. And I'm not talking about now, as our culture has done, moving away from this angry God to this God of mushy love, right? You know, where God just loves us all and just permits us to do whatever we want. I wonder, I wonder if God's love embraces us so that we can be transformed, so that the power of sin can be broken. And we begin to shine his light of truth in the world around us. Not to give us permission to just do whatever we want to do. As if that's somehow love? In the same way, this God of anger doesn't hold up to the text either. Is this not the point of the prodigal son? Where the one returns home, walking, journeying towards his father. And as he walks towards his father, you know what his father does? His father doesn't sit there and just kind of tolerate You know, there better be somebody else standing next to me that I can see through that lens, you know, because I'm not going to spend time with you. The father actually ups and runs towards his son. And if we could hear that story back in that day when Jesus taught it, what we would see is how undignified the move of the father running towards his son would be because the fathers would have all wore robes in those days. And as they ran, they never ran, but if they were to run, their robes would flow up all over the place, creating a very undignified scene. And Jesus said, when the sinner is coming, that's exactly how the Father responds. Which makes sense, because isn't that why he came to die? It does not say that God in his anger came in his frustration and tolerance. It said, for God so loved the world that he came to set us free from the power of sin. That sounds like good news. That sounds like great news. That sounds like it may be the kind of God I actually want to walk towards, knowing that I carry still sin in this body, so that in his love as he embraces, and in his grace, he grabs a hold of me and transforms that which is broken into that which is kingdom. Thirty years ago, I walked down that hallway towards the administrative offices, 100% wrong in what I had done. And I opened the door of the office and in my terror looked up and the school receptionist was there. And she greeted me with a smile. I thought for sure she would yell and scream she greeted me with a smile, and in the next hour was all this sweet time—actually, sweet time—with the administrative staff. It wasn't, didn't make me want to, you know, just wallow in what I had done. It actually, in a weird sort of way, love compelled me to not do it again. That love compelled me to not do it again. What is it about you? I, ooh, I want that. In my journey since, even in looking at words like Hebrews 4 that Andrew will put up on the screen and some other sermons that I'll I'll close with. I love Hebrews 4, which talks about this journey, especially towards the end. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. So we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin, which is why he could do what he did. So because that is true, and because the power of sin has been broken, let us then journey towards God. Let us journey towards God, approach God's throne, not of anger, but of grace, it says in the text. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that in my sin we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So maybe I actually could become a better father. Really, truly, from the inside out. Maybe I actually truly could become a better husband. Maybe I actually could live in this life without fear. Maybe the fruit of the Spirit, I actually could become a person of love and joy and peace. I'm not trying to put it on as some sort of exterior, uh, exterior Christian shell, but it actually becomes part of who I am because the love of God embraces me and transforms me in that way. It doesn't permit me. It does transform me. About 20 years ago, as I close now, I sat in a gymnasium filled with people, listening to a Sunday morning sermon, and a man who I will never forget, uh, oldest living man at that time was cystic fibrosis in the United States of America, he could barely breathe. He was on a ventilator throughout most of the week, even up into the moments that he would stand up to give. The sermon, he had to have this machine that would break up the fluid in his lungs, and then God would just do something that... To this day, it it just baffles me. The man would stand up who couldn't breathe a couple minutes before, would proceed to give three straight sermons, 45 minutes in length, just proclaiming the wonders of the kingdom of God. And as he stood up there this one morning, he kept asking this question, when is the last time you tasted your depravity? A real popular sermon, right? When is the last time you tasted the depth of your sin? And he asked that over and over again. And he got to the end of the sermon. He said, "Now I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads and close your eyes, and I'm going to ask God to just reveal, in the way that God does, some of the depravity, some of the sin that is still there." And I remember thinking, as he invited us to do that, that, "Oh, well, I'll do that because that's what we're all doing and stuff." But I really got nothing. <laughs> you know, there's there's nothing. There And so I bowed my head and I closed my eyes. And immediately upon doing that, it was almost like God just went and plucked out my heart and held it there in front of me. And I saw some of the subtleties of the way in which we interact with our sin throughout this journey of life. I saw the selfishness with which I would do conversations where they're all about me or they're all about this. I saw some of the fear that I carried stuff that wasn't necessarily terribly present to my day-to-day life. I saw and I tasted of my depravity. I had already prayed the prayer a gazillion times. <laughs> and yet that was still there. And here's what I wanted to do when I tasted that. I wanted to run. I wanted to run. And I remember thinking, oh, God. And then the minister called us up, or he, he called us to raise our heads and our eyes back up. And he said these words. I said them several times, even in the sermon. He said, here's the deal. You don't have to run. You don't have to run. Because this is why I came. This is why I died. I came to set you free. You've been set free. Continue to be set free from the power of sin. Don't be afraid of it. What would it be like to live in a body of people where the sin no longer causes us to wear these social constructions where we say God is good and then we go on our way all the while knowing what we're carrying inside. What would it be like if we could be real with our sin? I want you all to invite and just say out loud now the sin that, you know, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But what would it be like if we could? What would it be like if love, perfect love, really cast out fear? like the text says that it does. And in that, I can drop my fig leaves, say, God, this is who I am. In the good, in the bad, in the wonder, in the brokenness, can you transform me in ever-increasing ways into the image of your son now that the power of sin has been broken? I want to come to your throne of grace. is going to come forward now, Joel, as well. And uh, Andrea has what I think is just this fabulous passage that... Um, have been planned from Romans 8. It's a familiar passage probably to many of you. She's just going to read it from the Message Bible because it really hits on so much of what we've talked about this morning. And uh, these are the words of Paul describing who God is. So let you, just take those and let them do what they will do to your lens of who God is because maybe, just maybe, the good news is that good, that God, though his anger is real, it is not perpetual and it is not pervasive. Because the text talks about how his anger is always passing, it always passes, but his love endures forever.
2: This is from Romans eight twenty nine through 39 God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made the decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then, after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, How can we lose if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son? Is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing. Not even the worst sins listed in scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love. Because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us.
0: I'd like to close. Just pray a prayer over you, Joel. I, I assume you know how to play "Jesus Loves Me" on the piano. Isn't that what they teach you in worship school? Like right away. That's the second song. That's a, okay. Come, come on oh. <laughs> 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 What I'd like to do is just pray a prayer of blessing over all of you. I know that it messes up with our lenses and how do we see this, God? Seems like we start so well with our children, don't we? Isn't this what we teach them? I don't think it gets any less true as we journey out the rest of this life. In our sin, the embrace is there. I'd like to just pray that blessing over you as you walk out this journey ahead. Let's pray. God, I ask that your great love would be made known in our hearts as we figure out this messy path towards you. That who you are would break the power of sin in our lives and transform us into your likeness. That we can turn to our children and to one another, into the world, and offer the good news that sin has been broken and there's a throne of grace waiting to transform I ask these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen.